Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second half of chapter two, which is entitled The Origins of American Policing. City Guards. Slave control was no less a priority for white urbanites than for their country kin. The growing numbers of black people in cities were of obvious concern to the white population, and their concentration in distinct neighborhoods presented an unnerving reminder of the possibility of revolt. In many respects, the cities followed the lead of the plantations. There, too, black people, slaves especially, but free black people as well, were singled out by the law, and specialized enforcement mechanisms arose to ensure compliance. These agencies, quote, went by a variety of names, including town guard, city patrol, or night police, although their duties were the same, to prevent slave gatherings and cut down on urban crime, unquote. In the initial stage, enforcement would be entrusted to private individuals and the existing watch, but after some period, the town might petition the legislature for the funds to form a permanent patrol, with the same group on duty each night. The urban patrols, then, did not evolve from the watch system, rather adopted from the rural slave patrols. They came to supplant the watchmen. Charleston formed a city guard in 1783. It wore uniforms, carried muskets and swords, and maintained a substantial mounted division. Unlike the watchmen, who walked their beats individually, the city guard patrolled as a company. Louis Tosistro, who traveled through Charleston in the 1840s, described the patrol, quote, The city suddenly assumes an appearance of a great military garrison, and all the principal streets become forthwith alive with the patrolling parties of twenties and thirties, headed by fife and drum, conveying the idea of a general siege. Unquote. A few years later, in the early 1850s, J. Benwell, an English visitor to Charleston, described the reaction of black people to the mounting of the guard. Quote, it was a stirring scene when the drums beat at the guardhouse in the public square to witness the Negroes scouring the streets in all directions to get to their places of abode, many of them in great trepidation, uttering ejaculations of terror as they ran. Unquote. Throughout the first part of the 19th century, similar urban patrols were created in Savannah, Mobile, and Richmond. The Savannah Guard carried muskets and wore uniforms as early as 1796. It was later equipped with horses and pistols. Richmond's public guard was formed in 1800 after the discovery of a planned rebellion. It was assigned to protect public buildings from insurrections and was made responsible for punishing any slaves it found out after curfew. The urban patrols and the laws they enforced were modeled on the system developed for the plantations, but cities with developing industries had different needs than did the surrounding rural areas with their plantation economies. For one thing, the large numbers of black people present in the city often lived in one part of town, away from their masters, making it impossible to maintain the sort of intimate knowledge of the slaves' comings and goings essential to the plantation system. Furthermore, rigid restrictions on daily travel were not even desirable, proving inconvenient for the budding industries. As burgeoning industries sought out cheap sources of labor, the practice of hiring out slaves became increasingly common. Under this arrangement, slaves paid the master a stipulated fee and were then free to take their other jobs at wages. The regulations on travel, then, had to be more flexible for slaves to do their work. As the masters, quote, capitalized their slaves, unquote, the bondsmen became, literally, wage slaves. Industrialization in southern cities thus not only created new demands for social control, but threatened to alter the entire institution of slavery. Quote, the slavery system was based essentially on the agricultural regime and no other. 
Its system of control was fixed on the basis of the slaves forever remaining a field hand, or at best remaining attached to the plantation. But the city had other work for the slave to do, which rendered the original plan of regulation cumbersome and unsuitable." Unquote. Given the white population's preoccupation with controlling black people, the practice of hiring out slaves was quite controversial. As late as 1858, it was denounced in a grand jury report of colored population. Spelling out the concerns of the white community, the report states, quote, The evil lies in the breaking down of the relation between master and slave, the removal of the slave from the master's discipline and control and the assumption of freedom and independence on the part of the slave, the idleness, disorder, and crime which are consequential, and the necessity thereby created for additional police regulations to keep them in subjugation and order, and the trouble and expense they involve." Unquote. In other words, economic changes related to industrialization and urban life relaxed the master's personal control over the slave, but did not reduce the racist obsession with slave control. Additional responsibilities thus fell to the state. Between 1712 and 1822, South Carolina banned the practice of hiring out slaves, but these laws went almost entirely unenforced, and other means of control emerged. Beginning in 1804, Charleston established a nightly curfew for the black population, free and slave alike. A few years later, a statewide 9 o'clock curfew was established. Free black people were required to carry a pass from their employers, and patrols beat those who didn't have their free papers. A stricter law was passed in Pendleton in 1835, instructing the patrol to, quote, apprehend and correct all slaves and free persons of color, unquote, on the streets after nine at night, quote, whether such slave or free person of color have a pass or not, unquote. In Charleston, the law requiring passes gradually gave way to a system of badges for slaves being hired out. This procedure allowed the state the opportunity to regulate the practice of hiring out slaves, and entitled it to a share of the master's fee, that is, really, of the slaves' wages. Slowly, Charleston began to prefigure the segregated South of the 20th century. In 1848, the city limited the right of black people to use the public parks. In 1850, black people were banned from bars altogether. Meanwhile, throughout South Carolina, town after town asked the state legislature to transfer control of the slave patrols from the county courts or state militia to the local government. Camden won that power in 1818. Columbia followed in 1823. Georgetown requested it in 1810, but was not granted it until 1829. Ten years later, the legislature granted all incorporated South Carolina towns the power to regulate patrol duty. The patrol's work was not always popular. Peter Cutting, the head of the Georgetown Guards, soon found his house burned to the ground. Around the same time, a citizen wrote in to the Charleston paper, quote, I think it is dangerous for a person to send out his slave even with a pass, unquote. But the most common complaint was that the guards did not do their jobs. Grant juries frequently cited them for, quote, shameful neglect of patrol duty, unquote a term covering absenteeism, drinking on duty, and patrolling in a slipshod fashion. Whatever the faults of these patrols, the white citizens of the American South relied on them to alleviate their anxieties about slave rebellions. These anxieties changed with the growth of the urban population, and the patrols changed with them, eventually approaching the model of a modern police force. 
Still, though they provided a transition between the militia and the police, and despite their resemblance to other functionaries responsible for slave control, the patrols represented a distinct mode of policing. While originally bound up with the militia system, the patrols served in a specialized capacity, distinguishing them from the rest of the militia. Furthermore, the authority over the patrols came more and more to shift from the militia to the courts, and then to the city government, implying that patrolling was regarded as a civil rather than military activity. The patrols also, in certain respects, resembled the watch. The watch, even in northern cities, was issued specific instructions concerning the policing of the black population. Boston, for example, instituted a curfew for black people and Native Americans beginning in 1703. In 1736, the watch was specifically ordered to, quote, take up all Negro and mulatto servants that shall be unseasonably absent from their master's families without giving sufficient reason therefor, unquote. But while the watch was told to keep an eye on black people along with numerous other potential sources of trouble, the slave patrols and later the city guards were more specialized, focusing almost exclusively on black people. In fact, it is this racist specialization that, more than anything else, distinguished the slave patrols from other police types and accelerated their rate of development. Quote, the reliance upon race as a defining feature of this new colonial creation reveals the singular difference that set slave patrols apart from their European antecedents. Although slave patrols also supervised the activities of free African Americans and suspicious whites who associated with slaves, the main focus of their attention fell upon slaves. Bondsmen could easily be distinguished by their race and thus became easy and immediate targets of racial brutality. As a result, the new American innovation in law enforcement during the 18th and early 19th centuries was the creation of racially focused law enforcement groups in the American South. Unquote. With this specialization came expanded powers to search the homes of black people, to mete out summary punishment, and to confiscate a broad range of valuables without need to demonstrate further suspicion. Moreover, their relationship to the militia meant that patrols generally carried firearms, whereas the watch did not. While the slave patrols did anticipate the creation of modern police, it must still be remembered that they were not themselves modern police. Of the two sets of criteria listed earlier, the slave patrols satisfied those of a police endeavor. They were public, authorized, indeed instructed, to use force, and had general enforcement powers, if only over certain segments of the population. They do not, however, seem very modern by the second set of criteria. They were certainly not the main law enforcement body, and they usually only operated at night. Arrangements for pay and continuity of service varied by location, but they were generally no more advanced than was typical of the watch. The patrols did have citywide and sometimes broader jurisdiction, and they were accountable to either the militias or the courts, or later to special committees. And perhaps more than any police force before them, the patrols had a preventative or orientation. Rather than respond to slave revolts, as the militia had done, or take off after runaways, like the professional slave catchers, the patrol aimed to prevent rebellions, and sometimes operated to keep the slaves from even leaving the plantation. The slave patrol, which began as an offshoot of the militia, and came to resemble modern police, thus provides a transitional model in the development of policing. As the militia adapted to the needs of a rural agrarian slave society, 
it evolved into a new form that surpassed the original. The slave patrols, when confronted with the conditions of a proto-industrialized city where slavery itself was facing obsolescence, underwent a similar metamorphosis. Charleston, keeping down the niggers. In 1671, the South Carolina's Grand Council created a watch for Charlestown, consisting of the regular constables and a rotation of six citizens. They guarded the city against fire, Indians, slave gatherings, and other signs of trouble, and detained lawbreakers until the next day. The law creating the watch was reviewed in 1698, with an addendum citing the increase in the black population. Quote, and whereas Negroes frequently absent themselves from their masters' or owners' houses, caballing, pilfering, stealing, and playing the rogue at unseasonable hours of the night, be it therefore enacted that any constable or his deputy meeting with any Negro or Negroes belonging to Charlestown at such unreasonable times as aforesaid, and cannot give good and satisfactory account of his business, the said constable or his deputy is required to keep the said negro or negroes in safe custody till next morning." Unquote. For this work, the constable was to receive a fee from the owner of the detained slaves. In 1701, the exact language of this law was repeated, though the fee was increased, and the constable was further instructed to administer a severe beating. In 1703, as a wartime measure, the governor established a paid watch and added special duties related to sailors and bars. This experiment was short-lived, however, and 17 months after its creation it was replaced with a volunteer patrol organized by the militia. This organization was essentially the slave patrol. In 1721, it again merged with the militia. Its function was broadened, giving patrollers authority over a large part of the working class, besides the slaves. The new law instructed patrollers, quote, to use their utmost endeavor to prevent all caballings amongst Negroes by dispersing of them when drumming or playing, and to search all Negro houses for arms or other offensive weapons, and farther, are hereby empowered to examine all white servants they shall meet with out of their master's business, and the same if they suspect to be run away or upon any ill design, to carry such servant immediately to be whipped or punished as he shall think fit, and then send him home to his master, and also, if they meet with any idle, looser, vagrant fellow that cannot give good account of his business, shall also be hereby empowered to carry such a vagrant fellow to a magistrate." Unquote. By 1734, this body was again removed from the militia, and was explicitly referred to as a slave police. By this time, the patrollers were all armed and mounted, and were ordered to search the houses of all black people, pursue and capture escaped slaves, and kill any slave who used a weapon against them. Until the end of the colonial period, the parish of St. Philip, which includes Charleston, had two separate slave patrols, the two largest in the state. By 1785, these patrols were incorporated into the Charleston Guard and Watch. This body was responsible for arresting vagrants and other suspicious persons, preventing felonies and disturbances, and warning of fires. But one guard described his job succinctly as, quote, keeping down the niggers, unquote. Indeed, slave control was the aspect of their work most emphasized by the public officials and given highest priority by the guard itself. Quote, 
With very minor differences, their orders here were a summation of those given the rural patrols in the preceding hundred years, with the major and natural exception that they did not inspect plantations." Unquote. The organization of the Charleston Guard and Watch represented a significant advance in the development of policing. The force contained a developed hierarchy and a chain of command, consisting of a captain, a lieutenant, three corporals, 58 privates, and a drummer. Each was given a gun, a bayonet, rattle, freeze as a signal, and uniform coat. Some acted as a standing guard, the rest were divided into two patrols, one for St. Philip's Parish and the other for St. Michael's. The captain issued daily reports, and all the men were paid. The same group patrolled every night, and discipline and morale received a level of attention unique at the time. By our earlier criteria, there can be no question that the Charleston Guard and Watch were involved in policing. They were authorized to use force, had general enforcement responsibilities, and were publicly controlled. They were also exceptionally modern. The Guard was the principal law enforcement agency in Charleston, enjoyed a jurisdiction covering the entire city and some of the surrounding countryside, served a specialized police function, and had a preventive orientation. It also established organizational continuity, and paid its personnel by salary. In fact, lacking only 24-hour service, the Charleston Guard and Watch may count as the first modern police department, predating the London Metropolitan Police by more than 30 years. Charleston, being subject to the pressures of maintaining a slave system in an urban area with an industrializing economy, underwent an intense period of innovation just around the time of the American Revolution. Its efforts to control the black population put it in the lead in the development of modern policing. But once policing mechanisms were in place, the authorities felt little need to tamper with them. When change again appeared on the agenda following the discovery of a plan for insurrection in 1822, the authorities instituted reforms that had been developed pre previously in other cities. During the intervening years, Charleston's advances were surpassed by those of another southern city, facing similar but distinct social pressures. New Orleans, barbarism, despotism, and a system of violence. Occupying a strategic position for both economic and military uses, the city of New Orleans has changed hands numerous times, but until the Civil War, each subsequent regime agreed on one basic principle, the utter suppression of the black race. In succession, the French, Spanish, and American governments enacted very nearly the same set of laws for this purpose, controlling the social, economic, and political life of the black community, and regulating the work, travel, education, and living arrangements of black people in the city. Louis XIV instructed a Code Noir in 1685, in which Sieur de Benville, the founder of the French colony of Louisiana, copied. The Spanish retained it as their own, while they controlled the city, and the Americans reenacted it as the Black Code. In 1804, as the black population nearly equaled that of the white, New Orleans sought out special mechanisms for enforcing these laws. At the time, two separate night patrols were in effect, a militia guard to protect against outside attack, and a watch called the Serranos, whose primary duty was lighting the street lamps. But in 1804, the militia organized a mounted patrol, specifically to enforce the black codes. This unit only survived a few months, however, after repeated conflicts between the English-speaking militia guard and the French-speaking army, 
The patrol was disbanded in 1805, replaced with the gendarme. The gendarme, while nominally a military unit, functioned more as a slave patrol than anything else. The law establishing it made this clear. Quote, they will make rounds in suspected places where slaves can congregate, particularly on Sundays. They will break up these assemblies, foresee and prevent uproars and gambling, and declare confiscated all monies found for their own profit. The officers accompanied by all are part of their troop, and equipped with orders from the mayor, shall search negro huts on plantations, but only after looking for and then notifying the overseer or owner of these actions, as well as inviting them to be present at the search. And all firearms, lances, swords, etc., that shall be found in the said cabins will be confiscated and deposited in the city arsenal." Unquote. The gendarme also arrested slaves traveling without passes and maintained a reserve of officers for daytime emergencies. While drawn from the military, this group was directed by the mayor, magistrates, and other city officials, and was paid through a combination of salaries, fees, and rewards. Half-mounted, half-on-foot, all wearing blue uniforms, the same men patrolled every night. In many respects, then, the New Orleans patrol closely resembled the Charleston Guard of the same period, but it survived only briefly. In February 1806, the city council abolished the gendarme, citing the cost of horses and the poor quality of the men. That same year, the council created a city guard, modeled after and performing the same functions as the gendarme, though less militaristic in demeanor and lacking the horses. Aside from two years when there was no patrol, this body survived until 1836. In the 1830s, the city guard came under attack in the newspapers, courtrooms, and among politicians. In 1834, the Louisiana Advertiser accused the police of barbarism and despotism. It urged the city council to, quote, dispense with the sword and pistol, the musket and bayonet in our civil administration of Republican laws, and adopt or create a system more congenial to our feelings, to the opinions and interests of a free and prosperous people, and more in accordance with the spirit of the age we live in, unquote. That same year, a committee of the city council decried the guards' violent treatment of suspects, saying that, quote, the moment they lay hands on a prisoner, they at once commence a system of violence toward him. Unquote. It was police violence, the committee argued, that caused the forceful resistance of both prisoners and passers-by, acting from just indignation. In 1830, the death of the first person killed by a New Orleans cop prompted much of the criticism, but an underlying xenophobia was also at work, and the native-born population openly expressed distaste for the immigrant-dominated guard. Although important demographic shift, another important demographic shift may also help explain this backlash against the guard. During the 1830s and 1840s, the white population increased by 180%, while the black population increased at a much slower rate, 41%. Hence, with white people in the overwhelming majority, fears of a slave revolt were less present, while ethnic tensions among white groups were increasingly pronounced. Quote, a military-style police to protect against the danger of slave rebellion no longer compensated for the day-to-day -day irris irritation of respectable citizens who found their increasingly alien policemen too menacing and too lacking in deference. Unquote. In short, both the initial militarization and eventual demilitarization of New Orleans police were the product of the ethnic fears of the city's ruling class. 
1836, the city council did away with the military model of policing. In its place, they put a system of 24-hour patrolling along distinct beats. The blue uniforms were replaced with numbered leather caps, like those worn by watchmen in other cities. A committee of vigilance was elected to supervise them. This revision brought New Orleans into line with the watch system as it existed in northern cities, and represented a substantial break from the Charleston model. Still, the new organization retained the most modern features of the city guard and added them to 24-hour service. And added to them 24-hour service. Hence, in 1836, the New Orleans city government approved the adoption of a public body accountable to a central authority, authorized to use force, and assigned general law enforcement duties. This body would be the main agency of law enforcement, with citywide jurisdiction, organizational continuity, a specialized policing function, and 24-hour operations. And, as its inheritance from the slave patrol, it would be oriented toward the prevention of various disorders. In short, it would have all the major features of a modern police department. As luck would have it, however, this organization never materialized. As the city government was busy redesigning the police services, the state government was redesigning the entire municipal administration. In March 1836, the Louisiana State Legislature divided New Orleans among the borders of its ethnic neighborhoods, creating three distinct municipalities and preventing the just-settled police reforms from taking effect. Motivated by ethnic and economic rivalries, the plan maintained a common mayor and grand council, but divided the administration of services, including the police, into three districts. The city stayed so divided until 1852. Each department adopted a new non-military approach and retained some features of the old city guard, namely its public character, its authority to use force, its general law enforcement duties, 24-hour patrols, the goal of organizational continuity, its specialized police function, and its preventive orientation. However, none of the three could be counted as the chief law enforcement agency in the city because none had citywide jurisdiction. Furthermore, while in theory each police force was accountable to the general council, in practice they were solely controlled by the district government and little effort was made to coordinate among them. The general council met only once each year, leaving the practical management of the city's affairs to muni municipal councils. The arrangement actually exacerbated the ethnic tensions that led to the city's division in the first place, and neighborhood rivalries now found official expression in the structure of the government. In effect, the two sets of changes, fragmentation of the city government and restructuring of the police, laid the groundwork for the development of neighborhood-based and ethnocentric political machines, which the police, with the police taking a central role. Quote, During the 1840s and early 1850s, control of the police force had become an increasingly important issue in municipal politics because of its value as a source of patronage and its influence in elections. After the restoration of a unitary government in the city in 1852, the police played an even larger role in the manipulation of elections and resorted more frequently to intimidation and violence. Unquote. Even after formal consolidation in 1852, the police functioned as separate dis district-based organizations, controlled more by local political bosses than the general city government. The machine's influence was palpable. For example, when the American party, the Know-Nothings, gained control of the city in March 1855, 
they immediately removed all immigrants from the police force, reducing it from 450 to 265 members. After that, the police stood aside while know-nothings prevented immigrants from voting and sometimes aided in the effort. Opposition parties likewise fought for control of the polls. In the election of June 1858, a vigilance committee seized the state arsenal and police headquarters with the stated purpose of ensuring a fair election. Similar actions were taken in 1888 by the Young Men's Democratic Club, who, armed with rifles, surrounded the polls to prevent know-nothings and police from interfering with Democratic Party voters. Corruption didn't end at the polls. Less politically driven misconduct was also common. Naturally, vice laws created opportunities for corruption at all levels, and throughout the 19th century, scandals were common. In 1854, a new chief, William James, began a vigorous campaign to enforce the laws against gambling, liquor, and other vice crimes. As his reward, the board of police fired him and eliminated his office. Meanwhile, though state law forbade carrying concealed weapons and made no exception for police, many cops did begin carrying guns, especially revolvers, illicitly. This practice was condoned and sometimes advocated by supervisors, and eventually gained the mayor's approval as well. Predictably, a lack of training led to numerous accidents, often with police casualties. Brutality and violence were also common, and during the 1850s, several New Orleans cops were tried for murder. Most of these cases involved personal disputes, and the victims were frequently cops themselves. Quote, Less severe episodes of violence were legion. In a sample of cases covering a 21-month period during 1854 to 1856, the Board of Police adjudicated 43 cases of assault, assault and battery, or brutality by policemen, dismissing 13 of the accused from the force, and penalizing nine others with fines or loss of rank." Unquote. Of course, it is still worth noting that of the 672 cases adjudicated by the Board of Police during this same period, the majority of them, 59.2%, dealt with the dereliction of duty. Abuses of authority came at a distant second, comprising 17.4% of cases. Ironically, both sorts of complaints may have resulted from the same features of the job. Lack of discipline was certainly a factor of each, but the complaints may also reflect public disagreement about what it was the police were supposed to be doing. Respectable middle-class Protestants and temperance crusaders were e eager to have the police enforce laws regulating gambling, prostitution, drinking, and other vice and public-ordered offenses. The lower class and immigrant communities who often enjoyed these activities were apt to feel that the police were intruding where they weren't wanted or needed. The poor complained that they were treated unfairly or with unnecessary force. The respectable classes felt that the police weren't doing their jobs so long as such a vice persisted. This dispute directly reflects the struggle for control over the municipal government, and in a different sense, the debate about the nature of democracy, neither of which was resolved in the 19th century. New Orleans, in a sense, made the transition from southern plantation politics to northern machine politics, with the police occupying a central role in the process. Indeed, this transition was, in many respects, aided by the simultaneous shift from a distinctly southern model of policing based on the slave patrol to a northern style resembling the watch. The most distinctive features of early southern police forces 
were uniforms, formidable weapons, and wages, rather than fees or compulsory unpaid service. Around-the-clock patrolling and unification of day and night forces came later. In the 1840s and 1850s, northern cities adopted the 24-hour patrol. Quote, the most distinctive features of early southern police forces were uniforms, formidable weapons, and wages, rather than fees or compulsory unpaid service. Around-the-clock patrolling and unification of day and night forces came later. In the 1840s and 1850s, northern cities adopted the 24-hour patrol, organizational unity, and wages for patrolmen. Uniforms and firearms followed later. Often, northern policemen armed themselves with guns without official authorization or even against the law. New Orleans participated in both types of reform, adopting the Southern model in the period of 1805 to 1836 and shifting to the Northern model in the years 1836 through 1854. Unquote. This shift was significant, but not absolute. As a result, New Orleans foreshadowed many of the qualities of the modern police, qualities that finally crystallized in New York in 1848. New York, almost every conceivable crime. In New York, as in New Orleans, the move toward modern policing was closely tied to the reconstruction of city government. In 1830, the state legislature divided the city's common council into a board of aldermen and a board of assistant aldermen, each elected annually by ward. Distinct executive departments were formed, and the mayor was assigned the responsibility to see that the laws were enforced. A year later, the council gave him some of the authority he needed to meet that demand, putting him at the head of the watch. In the spring of 1843, Mayor Richard H. Morris proposed another round of reforms designed to re reorganize the city's government and consolidate the police. The state legislature authorized the city to create and manage a single centralized police department, specifically a day and night police, consisting of 800 officers. Under this plan, each ward would have its own patrol, and the officers had to live in the wards where they worked. The councillors would nominate officers from their ward, and the mayor would appoint them. This plan was finally accepted in May 1845. The new police ranked as extremely modern by the criteria listed earlier. A single organization was entrusted with the exclusive responsibility for law enforcement, served a specialized police function, patrolled 24 hours a day, and employed salaried personnel. In fact, New York City is often credited with having the first modern department in the United States. As we've seen, its claim to this title is debatable. The day and night police marked a step forward in nationwide progression, drawing from the solidifying ideas already in circulation elsewhere. But if New York's police did not invent the model, they set the standard for the rest of the country. At the same time, they also set a new standard for political interference. The mayor's power to appoint officers of all ranks made it clear that the new police force would be politically driven. An officer's job came as a reward for his political loyalty, and to keep the job he needed to support the officials who appointed him. Even if the politicians themselves did not demand such support, it was nevertheless built into the system. Since any incoming councilman would be likely to replace the present police with those of his own choosing, the cops understood that to keep their jobs they had to keep their patrons in power. Thus, the police came to represent not only a means of securing political support through patronage, but also if ensuring influence through more direct means. In 1894, the Lexow Commission concluded that, quote, 
In a very large number of the election districts in the city of New York, almost every conceivable crime against the elective franchise was either committed or permitted by the police, invariably in the interest of the dominant democratic organization of the city of New York, commonly called Tammany Hall. Unquote. The committee's report goes on to document police involvement in the, quote, arrest and brutal treatment of Republican voters, watchers, and workers, open violations of the election laws, canvassing for Tammany Hall candidates, invasion of election booths, forcing of Tammany Hall pasters upon Republican voters, general intimidation of the voters by police directly and by Tammany Hall election district captains in the presence and with the concurrence of the police, colonization of voters, illegal registration and repeating aided and knowingly permitted by the police, denial of Republican voters and election district officers of their legal rights and privileges, and on and on." Unquote. Political corruption was not new to the city, and law enforcement had always had a role in it, but the political use of the day and night police extended the established pattern and reached a new level of malfeasance. The watch had previously been used as a source of patronage, as political parties filled its ranks with their supporters. But the watch offered only a hint of the political uses to which the police could be put. A more developed example was provided by the marshals. Marshals, who operated more or less like constables, were created in the early 19th century to enforce laws that had previously been left to the attention of civilian informants. While the watch was a resource for rewarding supporters with jobs, the marshals were becoming an active force in local politics, a force that Tammany Hall would harness and direct for its own ends. Placed under the mayor's command, the marshals provided one means of controlling the city council. Quote, there were only 100 marshals, but this force could exert a great influence upon the primary meetings at which candidates for the general election were chosen. The marshals often had enough political influence in the wards to block the nomination of a candidate for alderman or assistant alderman, and sometimes they had sufficient power to ensure the nomination of their favorites. The day and night police replaced the watch and the marshals, concentrating police power and its political potential in a single agency. Predictably, the police expanded their political role in new directions, becoming a tool for ambitious politicians to increase their influence. The career of Fernando Wood gives some idea of the uses to which police could be put. Wood, a Democrat, ran for mayor on a reform platform and was elected in 1854. He began his term by launching an ambitious campaign against vice crimes, but quickly turned the effort to his own advantage. Saloons, gambling houses, and brothels were shut down, unless their owners supported the mayor's political machine. While declaring, quote, I know no party and recognize no political obligation, unquote, Wood described police along strictly partisan lines and was willing to impose all sorts of political obligations on the officers under his command. Police were required to make financial contributions to the mayor's re-election campaign, and many were ordered to canvass for him as well. Those on duty ignored irregularities in polling, and two officers, Petty and Hanley, inspected all the ballots in the first ward, beating anyone who voted against the mayor. When Wood was re-elected, the Tribune estimated the police had been worth 10,000 votes. But while the Democrats retained the mayorality and controlled both boards of the council, the Republicans held the governor's mansion and the state assembly, sharing the Senate with the know-nothings. In 1857, the state legislature passed the Metropolitan Police Bill, creating a new police force with jurisdiction over Kings, Brooklyn, 
Westchester, Richmond, and New York, Manhattan counties, and dissolving the existent, existing municipal police. A five-member board was established to oversee the new department, and no Democrats were appointed to it. Harper's Weekly noted, quote, Of this change, the practical effect will be to transfer the patronage of our city police to Albany, unquote. Wood refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of the Metropolitan Police Law and ordered the police to obey only his authority. 800 officers and 15 captains sided with Wood, and about half as many joined the Metropolitans. For two months, the city had two competing police forces, resulting in occasional street fights and brawls in the station houses. The conflict reached its peak when 50 Metropolitans tried to arrest Wood. 500 municipal police came to his defense, attacking the Metropolitans with their clubs and forcing a retreat. Finally, in July, after an appeals court ruled in favor of the Metropolitans, Wood dissolved the municipal police. The Metropolitan Police Department lasted until 1870, when another series of power struggles led to its reorganization. In the 1869 election, the Democrats won control of the mayor's office, the governorship, and the majority of the legislature. William M. Tweed proposed a new city charter and invested $600,000 in its passage. Under the new charter, the mayor appointed the police board and the police controlled the board of elections, selecting all inspectors and clerks, guarded the polls, and supervised the counting of ballots. In this too, New York set the standard for the rest of the country. Political machines arose throughout the East, and in a more subdued fashion in the West as well. In every case, the police department served as the strong arm of the machine, regardless of which party held power or whether the department answered to the city or state government. The police as we know them came into maturity at about the same time as the urban political machine, and while the machine's growth depended crucially on the police, their relationship was not that of equals. The cops were the tools of the machine. As tools they were used, as tools they were refined, and as very important tools they were fought over. Neither the political machines nor any part of them invented the police for this purpose, but they were well adapted to it, and without submitting to teleological reasoning, we should consider the implications of this fact for policing and for political authority. That's the end of chapter 2. The next chapter is called The Genesis of a Policed Society.